want unequivocally for the average American to go through their healthcare experience and for it to feel totally seamless. I think the greatest examples of the true step functions in our science and in our progress as a company have come from those unexpected insights that came when two people or five people with vastly different backgrounds were looking at the same problem from just completely different vantage points. At the end of the day, what you quickly realize is that the future of healthcare becomes incredibly obvious once you just sit down and ask yourself from first principles, where should it go? Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs and investors who are driving progress in healthcare and life science around the globe. Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. I'm Alex Merwin, Head of Growth, Healthcare, and Life Sciences Startups at AWS and Executive Producer of the show. And today, we're kicking off the year with something special. Drum roll, please. Part one of our all-time top 10 episodes countdown. We've combed through our 70-plus episode back catalog to bring you the most impactful, innovative stories from Healthcare and Life Sciences startups. So let's kick off this journey as we hear highlights from top episodes 10 through 6. Kicking off our top 10 countdown in position 10, we tune in to the tail end of our conversation with Artera. Joining us is Guillaume Dezwarek, co-founder and CEO, who shares how Artera is smoothing out customer service and healthcare. Tell me about your ambition for the future. So what do you want to see from you and your team in five years' time? Where are you going? We want to deliver on the mission, right? I want unequivocally for the average American to go through their healthcare experience and for it to feel totally seamless. We're not there yet. So where's the biggest gap? Two things, visibility and orchestration. Our customers, and frankly, our non-customers, uh, really have very little visibility into what's going on in their organizations. They know that their patients are getting a lot of communication. They're not sure where it's coming from. They're not sure when it's happening, and they have no idea if it's effective. We've released a series of tools recently that provide that visibility. You can search for any patient in our system and see every single communication that has been sent to them from every practice and from every vendor that's integrated with our Terra. Uh, we've opened up new capabilities, including extracts for vendors that won't integrate with us. Um, Epic would be a great example. So we have an Epic extract that provides a ton of value to our customers. Um, so that's the visibility piece. We've also delivered new reporting dashboards that show them aggregate level visibility across their entire system. So I can log into one place and see, I have 200 patients that are clearly getting over-communicated with. Here is the impact it is having. Now, the next question is, what do I do with this information, right? So that's the visibility, which nobody has. Everyone's blind. We're changing that, and we've launched tools to, to deliver that for our customers. And the next piece is orchestration. So I now have insights. Now, how do I actually fix the things that aren't working well? So our new platform is introducing this concept of rules, orchestration rules, where you can actually create master criteria that will suppress communications, prioritize communications, create limits. Hey, do not ever let one of my patients receive more than 10 communications in one day. I'm just giving you a random example. Hey, if a care gap, a bill, and a satisfaction form are all queued to go out at the same minute on the same day, prioritize the care gap, suppress everything else, and alert my team. So the orchestration 
is what is going to allow our customers and our prospective customers to actually deliver that premium experience, right? Because they will know what's going on and now they can actually act, set the rules, and they will see the impact on conversion rate, the impact on patient satisfaction, and so on and so forth. Just less anxiety for patients. I mean, there's, there's bill anxiety and, and financial anxiety that can be associated with treatment. And so the, the ordinal delivery of these messages can really have a big impact. You do not want to get your financial billing information before the course of treatment. That could really materially impact the, the adoption. Let me give you a practical example, right? I, I have two young kids. I have a daughter who's a year and a half. I have a son who's three years old. When my daughter was four months old, one night it was maybe two in the morning, her breathing was super labored. It sounded like she was breathing out of the straw. And we were about to go to the ED. What did I do? I pulled out my phone. I texted my pediatrician, right? Using our software, I just texted the phone number, said, hey, my daughter has super labored breathing. She hasn't been sick. I'm going to the ED. What should I do? So I sent that text. What do you think happened? Our system saw that. It followed a workflow, which was, this sounds urgent. It's after hours. It needs to go to on-call nurse. It was routed to a nurse. A minute later, I had a phone call. Hey, Guy, I just got your text. You need to go outside with your daughter. And if the breathing gets better within three minutes, you probably don't need to go to the ED. It's, I forget what the thing was, RSV or something like that. If it doesn't get better, go to emergency care. She saved me a trip to emergency care. If I was on a risk-based contract, she just saved her organization, I don't know, three grand. I don't know what the average cost of an ED visit is. So the real world applications of delivering great care are phenomenal for patient access. They're phenomenal for return on investment and savings. And there's a thousand other examples like that, that that that's what I want. Five years from now, I want that for every single use case for every single patient in America. It's a lot better than opening up a chat bot and saying, hey, you know, this is what I've got. What do you think? And then getting a hallucination back. You know, speaking about that and generative AI, one of the challenges with these large language models is they're non-interpretable. And it's almost as if we need to do new fundamental science on the nature of mind, if I can even use that term mm. on these LLMs. And so we're pretty far from this being software with a medical device. You know what I mean? Like it's really tempting to think of it as a clinical decision support tool, but I just don't see it. I mean, it, obviously nothing's been approved yet. And I just, with how the technology works, I think we got a ways to go. But with the work that you're doing, I think there's actually quite a lot that could be done there. What, how hard is it for your customers to actually write the content that is going up through the messaging platform? Are there opportunities to optimize that content delivery for different patient personas or demographic groups? And could generative AI be used to help alleviate the burden because not many hospitals have teams of copywriters that can work with them? Have you thought at all about this? And is there a role for generative AI in Artera's future? So we have a whole team focused on this, but we've been very cautious about putting the cart ahead of the horse, so to speak. There's a lot of marketing hype around AI being used, we've chosen to stay silent and just do our experiments. At the end of the day, our only objective with these experiments is to increase conversion. Conversion could be patient getting the answer they need, the care they need, or not having to talk to a human being. I'll give you a couple examples of, of some of the things we've experimented with. I need to send a care gap to every single patient who is eligible for a colonoscopy. And that might be a workflow that I've written out with a series of questions. Now, I have a lot of information about all my patients. There might be 100,000 patients who get that communication in any given year. Now, I don't have the time to create 100,000 different versions of that based on Alex's zip code, uh, socioeconomic information, background in terms of coming to seek care and being responsive and engaging. But you can give those criteria 
to an LLM and you can say, give me a version of this workflow that is more likely to convert for Alex. And you can imagine that at scale 100,000 times, if that can increase the response rate from 70% to even 72%, it is very meaningful. So that's one example. Another example is the really the classic, simple um, use case of autocomplete. This is what Epic is doing with their in-basket, right? It's suggesting responses for their physicians. I've got, I believe it's 30,000, 20 or 30,000 active hospital users on my software every single week. These are call center workers, back office. These are mid-levels and they're responding to patients, right? So we are testing with these same ideas. Patient asks a question, we suggest a response. The beauty of this model is that we can actually train the model because the staff sees the suggested response and they edit it and they send it. And that is training our model. So we actually have this, this amazing workforce that doesn't work for us of 20 or 30,000 people every day who will be able to see these suggested responses and train the model. And at some point, the confidence interval is going to be near 100% and we'll just send it to the patient. Um, but we've been very cautious. Healthcare has wonderful staff. In some cases, you could argue that with modern technology, it's even overstaffed from a call center and back office perspective. So let's put those folks to use. Let's elevate their pay grade. Let's get them responding to higher acuity patient questions. So that's what we fall back on. And they're, those are the folks that are going to be training our system to automate more and more of that journey. Wow. Listening back to that episode just reminds me of how powerful generative AI could be for improving patient journeys. You think about simple things like patient comms and how much work goes into personalizing that and the potential for these tools to automate the way that messaging is delivered. It's an incredibly exciting time we're in. Now, shifting gears and looking to number nine in our countdown, we focus on life sciences innovation and the world of Incitro, where Dr. Mary Roseman and Dr. Chris Probert share how Incitro uses machine learning to advance our understanding of biology. We'll learn about how Incitro's team's diverse backgrounds fuel a unique approach to drug discovery and why scale and diversity are crucial to their mission. This episode was a masterclass in how interdisciplinary teams can solve our most complex scientific problems and in health innovation. To hear it in its entirety, check out our show notes for a link to number 38 on our feed. Let's go. It's something that sounds really amazing, but what, is it, what does it look like when the rubber hits the road for that? Daphne Kohler, our founder and CEO, talks about the importance of people being bilingual. And when she talks about that, it, you know, what she's really referring to is biologists really learning the language of computer science or even machine learning and, and vice versa. Ultimately, it's not just about people learning to speak each other's languages, although it is incredibly important. It's about creating opportunities for people to truly come together to tackle things in a fundamentally different way, to create these program teams and project teams and bring people together and create opportunities for people to ask fundamentally different questions, not just try to answer them in different ways. And I think the greatest examples of not just in Citro successes, but the true step functions in our science and in our progress as a company have come from those unexpected insights that came when two people or five people with vastly different backgrounds were looking at the same problem from just completely different vantage points. And so I think we see our responsibility at in Citro as, as sort of creating an open, transparent culture where people engage openly, constructively, and with respect and work together in a truly collaborative way to help tackle things 
differently and better. I've seen the the insider outsider dynamic within healthcare and life science be a really powerful driver of innovation for exactly all the reasons that you laid out. So it seems like you've really tapped into that enough knowledge to ask the questions, but not such a deep expertise in in that particular area that you are bound by whatever the historical precedent is that may have worked in the past, but doesn't open you up to what could be in the future. It's really a compelling vision. Chris, I'd love to to hear a bit more about how the tech supports this vision. What are the advances in technology that have made what Mary laid out and what Daphne has talked about possible for Incitro? Yeah. So I think there are a number of themes that we've brought in from the outside world and that we've continued to extend and innovate ourselves over the past four years in Citro. If I had to pick four big buckets of innovation that I think are key enabling technologies, I'd say the first is quite simply machine learning. I think the, the, the ability to, and particularly deep learning, the ability to draw insights from data, to learn discriminative features, learn to make valuable predictions from data. I think that's the single biggest technology enabler that our science is really anchored on, that everything we do is driving towards making better predictions to, frankly, achieve better health outcomes for patients. I think other enabling technologies, so one big bucket is biology tools and bioengineering, things like CRISPR genome editing and iPSCs, which allow us to study biology at higher resolution during particular edits into particular patient cell lines that let us dissect genetic variability at a really fine-grained resolution and ask really targeted questions. Another is the suite of automation and imaging technologies. So these are things that we take advantage of in our high-throughput biology lab that we call our data factory. They allow us to operate the lab 24-7, produce data at huge scale, and benefit from the kind of reliability and reproducibility that, that you get when you're able to industrialize and automate data production rather than have humans do it. Right. Final bucket of external innovations or, say, key enablers for our science, I think, is human cohorts. The birth of early examples are things like Thousand Genomes Project since then, UK Biobank, and the work that Genomics England or FinGen or, you know, Our Future Health or, or all of us, any of these examples of, you know, thousands and millions scale data sets that have health outcomes and genetics and other high content data, I think have really enabled us to take the chain of translatability all the way from our cellular model system into interventions that actually make differences in patients. And when you talk about scale here, is that the scale element, the ability to scale those processes, scale what you're seeing, scale the impact? How does scale seems really central to that discussion? A lot of what we're doing, we're thinking about scale. We want to be able to study as many genetic perturbations as possible, as many environmental conditions, as many patients and genetic diversity as much as we can. An obvious answer is that the ability to detect a genetic signal is very largely based on cohort size. So in terms of the last bucket of innovation I talked about, the human cohorts that allow us to make genetic discoveries, we're only able to 
detect some of the signals that we find in the cohorts that are available today. This science simply wouldn't have been possible five to 10 years ago because the, the cohorts just weren't there, that you're only able to identify low-hanging fruit, not the more subtle disease modulators that are the alleles that we're able to pick up on in human cohorts today. I think more generally, it really lets us look across the spectrum of conditions um, across the spectrum of human genetics to draw insights that are ones we can only make when we've got access to such large human cohorts. Yeah, maybe I would just add that, as I said at the outset, Incitro really relies on data generation and data integration at scale. And Chris spoke to the incredible developments that have occurred over the past several years in terms of the quality this, the depth and the multimodality of the human cohort data sets that are available out there in the ecosystem. At the same time, we've always had a fundamental underlying belief at Incitro that we will be limited as a company in terms of what we are able to not just discover, but ultimately build increasing conviction in through the deployment of our machine learning tools if we rely only on pre-existing cohorts. Right. And so from day one, there was a commitment at Incitro, and Incitro is called Incitro because it's a combination of in silico and in vitro. In vitro, speaking to our commitment to printing our own data in the lab and fit-for-purpose model systems, the scale of that is what's really incredible. And Chris spoke to that earlier on the podcast as well, the investment that we've made in automation infrastructure and robotics and in the ability to continuously generate data from the appropriate model systems, that scale is critical because that scale is what ultimately powers our discovery as well. And our discovery processes can start on the clinical side or they can start on the cellular side. But ultimately, as Chris already said, they do need to come together. And the coming together of those two components is, is what we think is truly differentiating in the way it helps us build conviction in what we discover and or predict with our systems. It's an incredible amount of fun to sit on this side of the mic and pull together these stories for you. And one of the things that I love hearing the most from our customers is how they bridge traditional science and research and apply new technologies and machine learning to scale the impact of those insights and translate science from the bench side into the clinic. And that story from Incitro just really brings that to life. So really excited to feature them again. And please go check out the full episode via the link in our show notes. Heading on to position eight in our countdown brings us to Canvas Medical and the insights of CEO and founder Andrew Hines. You'll learn how Canvas Medical is innovating at the intersection of clinical, financial, and operational tools with a focus on the patient's clinical journey. To hear the complete episode, check out our show notes for a link to number 19 on our feed. And within that, the places you've already started to play, what what have been the biggest growth drivers? Is it net new entrants? Is it new models? What do you see? Like when you think about, you don't have to give anything away, but what's your can't miss group? What's the persona that you absolutely have to get for Canvas? It is the new entrants for sure. And these new entrants come from three places. I think the bread and butter for us today, where we're seeing so much activity is through venture funded PE back new entrants that have a vision for bringing a new care model to market that serves a population in a better way. 
And that's their competitive advantage. And our job is to accelerate that competitive advantage and help them use their resources to the greatest competitive effect for their target populations and their business models. There are two adjacent markets that are very important to us. And I think we will see how these unfold. One is incumbent systems, whether they're insurers or integrated delivery networks or academic medical centers that are either launching new practices to serve a specific population in a better way. And I always give the example of pre-postnatal care. If the standard care model or today's care model in a specific geography for a specific health system might have a 30-day wait to get a prenatal appointment. Now, right. you could get a phenomenal experience in 30 minutes uh, from some of the new entrants doing uh, maternity care. And that's these incumbents are feeling that. They're feeling that competition. And so I think some of the forward-thinking ones are investing ahead of it. And they're, they're looking to launch similar care models. The incumbents who are adopting care models that require new infrastructure is important to us. They have distribution rails, but they don't have the switching costs that are really challenging. The other adjacent market is the long tail. It's the physicians you and I know who are the one in five that responded to the AMA survey on what are you going to do with your career at this point? And one in five saying, I'm going to leave my current practice within the next two years. Yeah. I have certainly experienced this personally in our family and, and among our friend group, but it's extremely difficult today in today's environment. It can feel extractive. Not that there's any malintent explicitly, but it can feel extractive as a clinician in, in certain environments. And I think folks are declaring defiantly, optimistically, that there's a better way to do this. And so that long tail of potential new entrants that are accomplished clinicians that are looking to, to launch practices uh, themselves, hang their digital shingles, so to speak, is something we're very excited about. And there's some product enhancements and some roadmap decisions in front of us that are going to help accelerate that, but all sort of comes back to new entrants and, and technology focused. In a similar vein, I'm always curious about team building, particularly as companies grow and tackle these new segments. And particularly for you all, because, I mean, you're a good example of this. There are a ton of folks that have been building solutions like this for decades in, in pockets across the country and the world. When you were looking, when you've grown your team, what's your strategy been? Do you recruit from the traditional EMR backgrounds or are you saying, hey, we're trying to do something new. Let's bring maybe a more traditional non-EMR software background in and teach them the bits that need to be there to meet all the standards, but do it in a different way. Or what's the, how do you see that balance as you're building a team? We think about it every day. I think to some degree, it's idiosyncratic. Every individual brings a unique perspective and you might characterize them in one way or another. We see folks who come from big tech, but for whatever reason have developed real strong vocabulary in healthcare because their partner or their parents or their families are in the space. And so we look for that bridging. Even folks in healthcare, physicians, often younger physicians that have been writing software applications since they were 12, are very comfortable with programming. And so really looking for that, there's this concept of not just T-shaped people, but Greek letter pi shaped people, right? We're looking for people deep in multiple subject matter areas, but uh, with the context to bridge them. And we've been pretty successful in, in doing that. Now, 
the I think the functional area matters a lot here, right? And you know, we have folks on the team from with experience from Epic and with Anthem and, and Clover and Stanford and uh, Privia, and and they're all those organizations are all known for excellence in specific areas, and we try and match that with where we really need that capability again with that uh, ability to bridge and, and be an open be open to different ways of, of doing things. So I think one fortunate um, circumstance for us right now is just that if you're paying attention, it's pretty obvious that the need here is burning. And there is so much inertia around not just, forget about enablement doesn't matter if you don't have people there to go do the thing, right? And doing the thing is making healthcare delivery better, higher quality, the whole triple aim we talked about, or quadruple right. and now quintuple aim. Like that's the thing that's burning in terms of importance. And technology has just so clearly become a competitive advantage in doing that, that we're able to get some of the best talent in the country. I'm sure you're tapping into this, the same thing that I've seen in this field where when you go into like a subset new entrant, right? There will be a moment invariably. I think somebody memed this at one point where people sit around and they're like, we need to build we need to build an EMR to do what we want to do, whatever that little subset is, musculoskeletal care, behavioral health or telehealth, whatever. But then they realize that that is a whole thing in and of itself. And it must be very That's freeing right. to find the folks that say that old, you got to burn the boats. If you're going to do the EMR, that's a pure play activity. That's right. Yeah, It's not a side of the desk thing. Like yeah. well, you're going to do it. Where they, they have the whole, the market is so early and the understanding of the problems is still pretty nascent among you know many operators and entrepreneurs. And I think it's a really good sign, right? Like we, the market overall, just macroeconomics 101, ambulatory medicine, it's a trillion dollar services market, trillion dollars of ambulatory medical services delivered in the US. Right? Forget about surgical, forget about acute. It's not enough, right? And not from the dollar sign, but just like the amount of services we have this, the silver tsunami, there's a surge in demand that's going to last decades. And then we have the supply shortage across all capacity types, physicians, dietitians, behavioral analysts, nurse practitioners. We just don't have enough of anything. And so that creates the vacuum to pull entrepreneurs in. And so we're seeing the, again, this is a good thing, a lot of different backgrounds and folks coming at the problem in different ways with incomplete understanding. And from that comes a lot of new innovation and progress. But we're in a position where I think we can lend a lot of our expertise from working with so many of these businesses to help fill those gaps and help people go faster. Uh, I think the as we mature as a market and as a really a new arm of the industry, it'll start to become obvious, just like it is in, in web application development. No one would say, let's start, let's build a web app. And step one is to parse HTTP packets. <laughs> right, like, right. It's cookie. You, you just, you pick a web framework and you go. Right. And that's what Canvas is for care delivery. Mm -hmm. like you pick an EMR development platform, a payments development platform, and then you go. And that's like when we see that click, and it clicks pretty early on for most folks, it's very exciting for them and obviously very motivating for us and our teams and supporting them. That's a fantastic view into how Canvas has focused on creating an environment where people from different backgrounds can come together to drive innovation and impact in healthcare. And kudos for tackling the EMR segment, which is very challenging, but sorely in need for many of the specialist provider groups, which they were speaking about. Now, coming in at number seven, we're joined by Adrian Ayun, the CEO of Forward Health, 
who shares his vision for delivering scalable healthcare to billions. Discover the futuristic approach of Forward Health Clinics, their Star Trek-inspired body scanners, and Adrian's commitment to democratizing healthcare. This episode is not just about innovation, it's about thinking big, reimagining the entire healthcare landscape, and you can learn more by tuning into the whole episode, which is number 48. So what were the biggest surprises you encountered when you got involved in healthcare? Because you worked in some very different spaces before, you've entered with this big and bold vision. What surprised you? I'm going to sound incredibly obnoxious and say actually not that much, and I'll tell you why. Most people that want to go after an industry spend their time learning the industry. I don't know about healthcare. I really don't. I am not a healthcare person. Instead, I just try to go back to first principles and understand the problems that we need to solve. And it turns out that any one of us, we have our lived experience. We have our lives. We've been sick. We've been healthy. We know that we're aging. We know that we're going to die. We are actually all experts in what healthcare should look like. I promise you. Does that mean that we understand how insurance and payers and what all these you know acts of Congress mean? Do we know Medicare and Medicaid? No, no, but you don't need to. Those aren't the things that matter. The same way, it's not like you were sitting over in the early days of Google, sitting there trying to explain to Larry and Sergey the Dewey Decimal System. Like, we're not trying to rebuild a library. We're trying to build Google. And so instead, once you start with first principles, it turns out you end up not being surprised that often. Yeah, it's an industry with a lot of regulation. Yeah, it's an industry where you really do have to rebuild a whole bunch of infrastructure from the ground up. So I know it's a lot of work. And I'm not saying by any stretch that I think we have a guaranteed chance of success. No, I think it's incredibly low probability that we accomplish our mission. But I also know that the strategy we're going about is the right strategy, because again, you can clearly determine this from first principles. And that's what matters. So tell me more about those first principles. So whenever I want to think about what's the future of an industry, I just start by doing the thought experiment. I don't know if you've done thought experiments before, but they're really easy. If you choose a dimension, you take it to the extreme. Let's try an example, right? So healthcare today, about 20% of GDP, which really just means 20% of your paycheck, going up a lot, right? It's going up about 7% year over year. Doesn't sound like much until you realize that means it's doubling every decade. Like somehow this thing's going to be 40% of my paycheck in a decade. I don't even know how you do that. But rather than thinking about the 20% and the 40%, just ask yourself the thought experiment. Do I believe at the limit healthcare should cost a dollar a person or a billion dollars a person? And I think we're all going to agree. Healthcare is going to cost a dollar a person. Okay, great. So that's the first thing. We know at Ford that we want to reduce cost. Okay, second thing. Do I believe that I'm better off reacting to medical issues or preventing medical issues? At the limit, do I want to build only prevention? Or do I want to build only reaction? Obviously, prevention. This is incredibly obvious, right? What is it? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure? Like, wait, it turns out these things are very logical. Okay, so now we know that we want it to cost a dollar a person and we want it to be preventive. Okay, next thing. Do we believe that healthcare at the limit should use one piece of data or all the data? Obviously, all the data. More knowledge can't hurt you, right? So all the information. So we know at Ford that every single day we are going to be striving to collect more and more information. But let's keep going. Do I believe that to practice medicine, to help others, you need to go to 100 years of med school or that the tools are so simple that you can practice medicine with five minutes of knowledge? Well, why not five minutes? So we know that at Ford, every single day, we should be creating tools that make it easier and easier for us to provide care, for anyone to provide care for someone else. 
Let's keep going. Do we believe that healthcare should be gated behind other people, right? Doctors, nurses, insurance companies, et cetera. Or do we believe that the tools should be so great that you can take control of your own health, that you can determine mm. your own health and make your own decisions? Obviously, we believe that, that it should, the power should be put in your hands. So every day, what we're doing is we're working to create tools that allow our members to control the, their own future of their health not leave it in anybody else's hands. And I can keep going. These are merely a few, maybe four or five of the dimensions that we think about, whereas we think about 30, we think about 40 dimensions. But at the end of the day, what you quickly realize is that the future of healthcare becomes incredibly obvious once you just sit down and ask yourself from first principles, where should it go? Yep. So I got five. Low cost is better. Prevention is better than treating people when they're sick. More data is better than less data. More access, better than less access. Then providing authority to patients, uh, informing people, people, enabling them to take yeah. more control of their care. Your mission. I can, give you, initial, I can give you five more and five more. It I'm turns sure out every I'm sure. part but, of healthcare is broken. Yeah, but that's a but that's a good base. Your initial statement on your mission was to become the health system for the planet. Talk through the services you're providing right now, so the the primary care component and your vision for how that can grow out and expand to more key services that a health system provides. Yeah. So if we want to take every single part of healthcare from being a service to being a product, from what the doctors and nurses are doing, we just want to migrate it over to hardware and software. At some point, you realize that's boiling the ocean. That's a lot of work. So you have to start somewhere. When Elon came out and said, I want to build electric cars, he looked around and he was like, ah, oh, bad news. Like the world wasn't built for me. There's gas stations, not electric stations. There's oil mines, not lithium mines. And he realized that he has to go after the entire thing from the ground up. Now, obviously he did that in stages, right? He starts with his Model S, then moves to his Model 3. When you say you want to build healthcare as a product, you look around and you quickly realize the entire world of healthcare was not built for you. You have to rebuild every single part of it from the ground up. And when I say everything, I mean everything from open heart surgery to delivering babies to oncology to pharma. We want to do it all. But again, that's boiling the ocean. That's insane. So where do you start? What is our Model S? Well, our Model S is pretty obvious. What we did mm. is we started by building a high-tech doctor's office. We built one in San Francisco. It's done pretty well. So we've scaled it up all across the nation. We're live in order of about 25 cities or so. But immediately you go, wait a minute, Adrian, you just told me you want to get healthcare to the whole planet. And then you told me that you've got a doctor's office with doctors in it, like, like square the two, because you know that's not going to scale. But think about what we're doing. Every day we're watching what's happening inside of our clinics. You come in, you sit in the exam chair, you talk to your doctor about the flu. I immediately go, wait a minute, why do you even come in? Why not build that into the mobile app? Next guy comes in, he sits in the exam chair, talks to his doctor about his skin issues. I build a skin scanner. Next woman talks to her doctor about her heart issues. We build a body scanner. And slowly but surely, mm. what we're doing is, again, we're just migrating every single thing from doctor and nurse to hardware and software until what you realize is that at the limit, Forward is not building doctor's offices. Forward is building hardware and software. In fact, we don't believe doctor's offices should even exist. And that's the path that we're going down. It's not a path that happens overnight. This isn't a one or two year adventure. This is, this is a many year venture, but that's the path that we're going down. And so far it seems to be working quite well. 
That conversation with Adrian was one of my personal favorites because he's such a contrarian and has such a unique view on what we need to do to innovate as an industry. I appreciate how he thinks about things from first principles, which is much more simple than the way we usually approach problems and problem solving in healthcare. Now, rounding out part one of our countdown at number six, we explore the groundbreaking work of Us2AI in transforming echocardiograms with Dr. Carolyn Lamb and James Hare, who speak about their regulatory strategy, global impact, and advice for founders. Their dedication to making advanced healthcare accessible is a testament to the power of technology in transforming patient care. If you like what you hear, you can see a link to episode number 61 in our show notes. Fantastic. And moving on to the regulatory regimes, because we've been speaking about different use cases in the US, the Philippines, and Uganda. How does the clinical decision support regulatory regime impact how you consider launching in, in new markets? Yeah, so it's, it's a very important, uh, for, for clear reasons. Fortunately, what happens is most countries around the world tend to leverage heavily the work that we do in the US or Europe. Even in the US or Europe, those are two very different processes, but very robust processes. And so we tend to focus there first. So our first release of any product will come out in the US and Europe. We tend to go for both simultaneously, even though they're very different challenges. And then once we get those approvals, we expand from there. So many other countries, they'll look and say, hey, do you have approval in the US or EU? And do you have approval in your home market, which is Singapore? And once we can check the box on those two things, then it tends to go very fast. So that's what we do. We start US and EU and then spread out from there. Fantastic. And just a little bit about the technology stack and how do you sort of approach the deployment into different markets? Yeah, so it depends. The, even within a single geographical market, we see many different workflows, right? So we're uh, an odd duck as a company. We're a very lean team, only 30 people, but are commercializing in over 30 countries. And frankly, I don't even know if a company like ours could technically exist, you know, as little as uh, five years ago, but you know, with thanks to the wonders of Zoom and other te remote technologies and workflow tools, we're able to do it. Uh, we're able to sort of have our team, a lean team, supporting whatever the customer's workflow needs everywhere. And those needs, they vary. So there are places where customers are extremely cloud-friendly. They're very, very happy to use cloud platform, which we use AWS uh, to deploy uh, around the world. But there are other customers who, my God, you, you just mentioned the word cloud and they go running and screaming out of the room, right? They want nothing to do with the cloud, unfortunately. So there we have an on-prem solution for those customers uh, as well. And then what's really nice is, you know, many customers will have uh, multiple echo machines. And so what we're able to do is we're able to put one little tiny server, whether it's on-prem or in the cloud, that server running our software can then link to cheaper tablets, cheaper mobile devices to then do what Carolyn was describing above. You know, you could sort of imagine you have, you know, 10 echo machines uh, spread around a hospital. You could attach a cheap little tablet to each of those or a little mobile device to each of those, or just run around, look at your, your handphone, the results, uh, and all of those hook back into the one server that we have deployed in the hospital. So it's, it's a very flexible and scalable approach that we've had to frankly develop out of necessity because 
everybody has their own <laughs> workflow needs and we just have to solve for it all. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing, James. Perhaps I can, I can start to ask about your ambitions, Carolyn and James, for the next few years. Maybe we can pose that to Carolyn first. Oh, my moonshot dream is that truly Echo will follow the journey of the electrocardiogram, as I've mentioned, you know, where our AI can enable this to be democratized and used in settings where cardiac imaging is simply not available now. It would be so nice to see our AI enable primary care, a community-based screening for heart disease, and eventually, even further, perhaps in patients' homes, that would be a dream come true for me. Yeah, I think that's right. Maybe I can just add to that too. So, so now that we're in full commercial mode, you can imagine, and we're in 30 countries that we're doing, we're seeing a lot of potential customers around the world all the time. And to be honest, one of the things that surprises me the most about this business is just how many of the leading lights that we have the honor of sort of showing what we've developed and, and doing the demos, just how many of them have no idea how far AI has come and how robust it is. You know, they literally just have no idea. And it's just mind blowing when they see how accurate and quick software can be for something that they've trained all their lives and seen done differently all their lives. And out of nowhere, it's here. They just have no idea. And so for me, the, the big ambition, I would love for AI, you know, to be something like spell check, you know, something that users just assume is going to be there. It will always be there running in the background, you know, because we're a little bit faced in this current situation, you know, people tend to think of AI as, oh, it's that thing that doesn't quite work yet, but I, I, yeah, I hear about it every now and then. And yet, you know, suddenly once they're actually using AI regularly, every time they look at their phone and the facial recognition works, it's no longer AI. It's just, oh yeah, no, that's just software. That's what I want for our business. I, I cannot wait for us to transition from this shiny AI thing to, oh yeah, no, it's just my, my co-pilot working in the background, of course. Wonderful. I think that kind of keys into two, two quick things that I've heard recently. The first thing is from a user experience point of view, the best user experience for a solution is when the user doesn't even know that, that they're using the solution. And the second thing, I think it was Andrew who said that AI is like electricity, can be used for many things. And when it's there, you don't really take notice of it. That's exactly it. You know, so that's just absolutely aligned to those views. And I mean, you, you could even, you could even think of it like, uh, I mean, the electricity is a good one or even databases. There was a time where databases were like, ah, oh, this, this huge new daunting technology, we need special engineers for it. But now you, you, know, you expect databases to be everywhere. It's like, you don't even mention it. I had a lot of fun listening back to that Us2 AI conversation because I actually do remember when database analysts, DBAs were the hot gig in town. And he kind of makes you wonder, you know, when will machine learning engineers and data scientists, you know, be so integrated into our day-to-day -day work that we think of it in a similar way, hopefully soon. Well, thank you for joining us on this journey through the first half of our all-time top 10 episodes on the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. If you're inspired by what you've heard and you want to learn more, please check out our show notes for links to all the full episodes. 
To support our mission and ensure you don't miss out on next week's exciting conclusion featuring episodes five to one, make sure to subscribe to our feed to be notified when it drops. If you like what we're doing here, the best way to support the show is to share it with your colleagues and friends. We also really appreciate reviews wherever you listen. Your feedback is invaluable and we read every review. Remember, innovation in healthcare is a team sport. What can you do today to help us get a step closer to advancing health and flourishing? See you next week. And until then, take care.